is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 175 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to one of my favourite people, Jenna Moresi, all about how to just shut up and write the book, which, of course, is the title of her debut non-fiction book. So I am excited for that. But first, to last week's question, which, which was, which is, which was, what is giving you joy at the moment? So Kerry Hadisky said, another great episode. One thing giving me joy at the moment is this podcast. Oh, thank you. I've been sick for almost a week and needed a laugh, even if it did send me into a coughing fit. Oh, well, trust me, I empathise with that. Edwin Downward said, I'm on the cusp of getting final edits on my third sci-fi novel done. Another week and the fight to quiet the voices that say I must have missed an important fix and I'll be ready to hit publish. That is super exciting. Uh, Congratulations. Okay, this week's question is, what, look, look, and whenever I ask a question like this, you never, ever reply, but I'm, I am asking you this week, please engage with this question because it's important and it will make you feel good, okay? So the question this week is, what trait or skill do you value in yourself? So come on, everybody, let's be nice to ourselves this week and recognize our brilliance. The book recommendation of the week this week is House of Hunger by Alexis Henderson. Oh, wow. So I don't know if I have ever said this on the podcast before, but like my catnip in terms of books or like my uh, comfort read, that's what they call it. uh, My comfort read is vampire fiction, which is probably not the most comforting of things to read, but I fucking love vampire fiction. And so... I picked up House of Hunger by Alexis Henderson because I had been told it was kind of a fresh new twist on vampires. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. Like as if there can be another fresh twist. Like we've had all of the twists on vampires now, but no, no, it really was a fresh twist on vampires. And um, they were nothing like uh, what I expected. The prose was exquisite. Um, It was kind of borderline horror, I would say. And I don't really read horror, but uh, it was such a gripping a creepy gothic kind of sweeping fantasy um and it was sapphic although that wasn't that wasn't really like a big part of it it was just sort of something that was in the book um yeah wow i i really recommend you go and read this book just for how beautiful um and how rich the world building was so yes that is my book recommendation of the week So in personal news and updates, I cannot seem to kick this bug. So I got a virus, I think just before the new year. It is now the 20 fucking 5th of January as I record this. And um, I'm still not better. I am considerably better. Considerably better? Betterer? (laughs) And considerably more... I'm better than I was, right? Apparently I don't have a good grip of English, but I'm better than I was. I, so what happened was I got better. And then, so I was like, yeah, wicked, brilliant. I'm going to go to the gym. So I, (laughs) in typical Sasha style, went hard at the gym for a week and then promptly got 
exactly the same sickness back. So obviously it wasn't quite out of my system. And just because clearly I like to relearn the same fucking lesson, I went back to the gym on Monday and today I woke up and I'm sorry, <laughs> graphic warning. Uh, I woke up with a face full of fucking snot and swollen glands. So, and I've been coughing today, which I haven't done for like five days. So at this point, I'm just like, what the actual fuck? And um, I'm really sick of it. I, I don't really know what to do at this point. <laughs> and I'm sure everybody <laughs> has just rolled their eyes and gone, duh, you fucking sit your ass down and rest. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. But I'm not very good at that, am I? I'm great at some things, not very fucking good at resting, clearly. However, I am very, very sick of being sick. I'm tired of it. I want to be better so that I can go a thousand miles per hour again. And I think that I may need a holiday. <laughs> I think I may actually need to sit down for more than one evening in a row and potentially during the day as well. But I'm not very good at that. And what I've sort of realized is that when the wife and kid are at school and work, I work. And then when they're on holiday, I still seem to manage to find ways to work. So like, <laughs> it might have taken me a while, but I feel like I'm having an epiphany here that uh, apparently I'm not a machine and I do require some rest. I really feel like I may have learned this lesson once before and uh, probably didn't really go in very well. So yes, I may have to take a break at some point very soon. But not today, Satan, not today. I have so much going on. So as you know, uh, the launch of A Game of Hearts and Heist is approaching rapidly now. It is uh, the 25th of January today and the book is launching on the 10th of February. So a little over two weeks to go. <laughs> um, I... Okay, so I have already started planning a lessons learned because like I'm so excited to share everything that I've kind of learned from starting this new pen name. And that is going to be like a special one-off episode. And in there, I know last time I mentioned about the pre-orders and the pre-order numbers, I am going to tell you all of that in that episode. Um, what I will say is that I am four pre-orders away from beating my highest ever digital pre-orders on Amazon. And that includes the non-fiction. So uh, if anybody hasn't pre-ordered A Game of Hearts and Heist and thinks they would like fantasy romance, fast paced kind of action, full of romance and spice story, then I would be super grateful if you would hit the pre-order uh, buy button because holy shit. I don't really know what it means if I surpass my highest ever digital pre-orders, but um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it means something. It means I'm gonna be fucking excited. I know that much for sure. So I am working on that launch mostly and trying to write book two. Now, ugh, book two has been a bit of a pain in the ass. I definitely went in with a bit more fear and doubt, I think, because people were starting to see book one. Uh, so I don't think that helped. But what also didn't help is that I don't think I gave myself enough uh, intellection time just sitting with the story idea. So last week, what happened is that I ground to a halt around 24 and a half, 25,000 words. 
And what I realized is that I needed to rework the outline. And it was purely because what I'm trying to do is quite complicated in this second book. And the art of doing it well is to do it very simply. And I just don't think I had given myself enough time uh, to think about it and to talk it out. So my wife very kindly sat down with me and we spent seriously about five hours hashing out the outline. And I'm now having to go back and edit the first 25k. So my progress has ground to a halt. Well, I say it's ground to a halt. It hasn't because I'm now fixing it and everything feels great. So I think I've got, I think I had 12 chapters or 11, 11 or 12 chapters and I'm on eight today or halfway through chapter eight. So I'm almost there now. I think by, so it's Wednesday today and I think by Friday we'll be back uh, smashing words. But obviously I've lost over a week of time one, because I actually was put on my ass with this sickness. So I actually like had to take a sick day, which <laughs> apparently that's not something I do very often. Of course, I'd gotten stuck because I knew there was something wrong at the beginning. So I'm now almost through fixing that, which is great. But it means I am, I would say, one or two working weeks behind where I should be. And up until getting sick, I had been on schedule delivering exactly what I needed to do. So I know the schedule works because I've, I think this is book three that has been done, book three or four consistently at the same pace. So I know that's my natural pace, but what I think I need to be better at is uh, not working the evenings. Like I really need people to shout at me to stop working the fucking evening, which is all good and well until I actually have work that is on a deadline or needs to be done. And then what am I going to do? It's going to have to be done in the evening. So uh, yeah, or I need more working time in the, jet, in the day. I don't know. But anyway, so uh, most of my last week has been trying to fix what I fucked up and trying to recover and looking at moving deadlines. I've got to sit today and relook at the rest of the year because I need to change my Gantt chart uh, and all the production schedules to meet the new timeline, which is fine. I'm okay with that. We're, we're, I'm not spiraling. I'm not having a massive tantrum uh, about that. Obviously, I'm disappointed, but it is what it is. Sometimes we get sick, apparently. So yeah, that is mostly what I am doing. And in the background, I am sort of starting to turn my mind towards the villain's journey, uh, because that will be the next book that I write. And then I think that's it, really. Oh, and obviously, I had the launch of The Anatomy of a Bestseller. Uh, audiobook which has now gone live and um I don't I don't know if it's because I'm not launching them at the same time as the book I may try to do that with the villain's journey but I'm definitely not seeing the returns on audiobooks that I would like to uh, for the amount of time that it takes me to create so I know that lots of you say that you want the the non-fiction in audio so I think I'm probably going to give it two more tries I will attempt to do the audiobook for the villain's journey at a similar ish time to the launch, which may delay the launch, but we'll see. And then I will do the Anatomy of Prose because that is one of my bestsellers. And then I'm gonna make a judgment call on, on whether or not I continue investing my time in doing them uh, because obviously it's a considerable amount of time. And if I can't get the returns on, on doing them, <clears throat> there's no point spending my time doing it. 
I might as well do courses or something else because courses do have a big, um, they sell very well. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment and mostly very excited preparing for this whole extra lessons learnt uh, episode. Oh, if anybody has questions for me about the Ruby Row uh, um, saga, I don't know what to call it, this whole project, this whole... Anon- um, uh, this whole yeah uh, launch of a new pen name please do let me know probably drop me a message on instagram is the best thing to do uh because i would love to make sure that i'm providing this bonus episode uh in, in that's helpful so if you've got questions about uh, any particular aspect of it please do let me know okay i'm gonna stop uh waffling and move on the rebel of the week this week is luisa so uh she says i'm brazilian when i was 15 i worked hard on a portuguese project and was very proud of the result but my teacher gave me a zero Uh oh saying it was too good to have been written by a 15 year old and therefore was obviously copied from somewhere oh my god my parents got involved and managed to get me the good grade i deserved but in the meantime i went online and ranted about the situation on Orcut, which was popular in Brazil at the time. My profile had my real name, but nothing about where I lived or went to school. So the teacher wasn't identified. An anonymous reply to my post saying that I should have thought better before cheating. And I told them to go to hell because the whole point of my post was that I hadn't cheated. The next morning at school, the teacher who gave me the zero came out of nowhere with a lecture on how online defamation was a crime and could really get our parents into legal trouble. And I realised she was the Anon. If I hadn't had reasons unconnected to this story to be afraid of posting my location online, I would have gone back to that thread and posted her name and that of the school and see if she'd had the guts to follow through on that legal threat. But since I didn't do it back then, let me say now, Simone, who taught Portuguese (laughs) oh my goodness you are making me rebel for you on the podcast at Santa Maria High School back in uh, and I apologise for butchering this uh, Curitiba back in 2006 you can't sue me for stating the factual truth and the factual truth is that I didn't teach and you were a terrible uh, teacher and a creep for online stalking your student wow holy moly so this is a first I have never done a rebellion for someone on the show (laughs) but hey (laughs) we've, we've got to try these things every so often Fantastic story. And I'm so glad uh, that you did rebel and that your teachers helped and supported you uh, to get the grade that you deserved as well. Your teacher sounds like a bit of a knob, to be perfectly honest. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something live on the show. That's a new thing, apparently. Uh, You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. These seriously make my week every week, so I really appreciate it. A huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And tonight we've got an extra live where we are going to be uh, talking all about marketing and understanding and knowing your genre. This episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid. Other than me tell you all about why I love Pro Writing Aid, I'm going to let the amazing Kimberly Grimes tell you all about it. Kimberly is a YA fantasy author, and I will include a link to her book in the show notes. I've had pro writing aid for years now and frequently use the web editor program to check what I've written in my emails and newsletters. 
When checking my stories, either directly in Microsoft Word through the add-in feature or in the web editor on the ProWritingAid website, ProWritingAid is my go-to resource for grammar and spelling checks. And as much as I love the grammar and spelling checks, that's only half of what their editing software can do. Some of my favorite tools ProWritingAid offers are the overused words, echo words, and sentence length features. I've recommended ProWritingAid to many of my author friends, as well as many of my friends and family who are not writers. Not only is this program a must-have, but it's also a sanity saver. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I am piss my pants excited because one of my fave humans is back on the show today. Today, I am joined by Jenna Moresi. Jenna is a best-selling dark fantasy romance and writing craft now author, as well as a massive YouTube sensation with hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Her first installment in the Saviour series, The Saviour's Champion, was voted one of the best books of all time by the Book Depository. Born and raised in Silicon Valley, Jenna spends her free time snuggling up with her charming partner and their tiny dog, Buttercup. Hello and welcome. <laughs> Hello, I am so excited to be here. You already oh, know that. I love I, the Rebel Author Podcast. <laughs> I am so excited to have you back. These are always some of my actual favorite chats, only because like we are two of the most sweary people I know. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so I absolutely love it. You were last, like when so okay, so when I did the research for this, I literally shat the bed because I was like, hold on a minute. You were on episode 54, which was over a hundred episodes ago. How the fuck did we go a hundred episodes with you not coming back on the show? What the fuck? Anyway, life that, being crazy. <laughs> so that was October 2020. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes so everybody can uh, watch the first episode as well or listen to the first episode. Um, so October 2020 was over two fucking years ago. So normally I would ask everybody like to tell me about their journey, but everybody can go listen to the first one to get that. So tell me, what have you been up to in the last two years? Well, uh, besides life being crazy and pandemics happening and all, all that wonderful goodness, um, I have been working on the third book in the Savior series titled The Savior's Army. It is a sequel to uh, The Savior's Champion and The Savior's Sister, which are companion novels. So this will be the first sequel in the series. And I'm super excited about that. But the biggest thing that I've been working on or the most uh pertinent thing that I've been working on is I just released uh, my very first writing craft book, uh, Shut Up and Write the Book, a step-by-step -step guide to planning your novel from plan to print, or to crafting your novel from plan to print. I know the name of my book. <laughs> I know Which, the title. And I was lucky enough to read it. And like, if you love Jenna, you're going to love the book. Like, that's it. So and everybody loves Jenna who's here. So everybody oh. needs to go out and buy the book. Um yeah, it just sounded like you. And I think that's why I was like, yes, <laughs> it was literally like page after page after page of like watching your YouTube, but hearing it in my brain. So <laughs> That was okay. the idea. That yeah. was the idea. <laughs> okay. So for those authors considering writing nonfiction, um, what is the biggest lesson or takeaway that you got from working on your first nonfiction book? Because you haven't done nonfiction before. So like, yeah, how did it how did it feel? What was your biggest lesson? What did you take away from your process? 
Um, I think the biggest takeaway, or at least the one that I felt has been the most substantial in, you know, or being reflected in Shut Up and Write the Book is, it's a takeaway that I took while researching, because I was researching a lot of other writing craft, nonfiction books and seeing what else is out there. And I was feeling like a lot of um, work, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a way to put this, (laughs) like they, they, they feel so professional and refined and and um, a little stuffy and sometimes they can be hard to get through and uh, very academic. Maybe that's maybe that's the appropriate word to use. And for me, um, I, that's not really what I gravitate toward. I would rather someone talk to me like a real person. You know what I mean? I would rather to someone talk to me like you know just just keep it simple, straightforward. You know, add some humor because nonfiction can be potentially boring. So for me, I just, I just wanted to be myself and I wanted to talk the way or write the way I normally speak. I wanted to be straightforward because that's how I personally like to learn. I wanted to get to the point and I wanted to add some humor and some funny bits and some silly examples and some snark. That's one of the reasons I I really like your nonfiction books is because it has so much personality and, and it takes a topic that could be boring and it makes it entertaining and fun while you're learning. So for me, that was the biggest thing. And thus far, that's what people have been appreciating about it is, you know, not only are you learning something, but you're getting the Jenna Moresi experience and the the silly sarcasm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I cannot tell you the number of nonfiction, like writing graph books that I've not finished. I've just thrown yeah. away, put down because I just can't get through them. Like, and life is too fucking short to read, mm-hmm. like stuffy, dry, slow, but well, okay, no, some people like slow books, fine, not me, but you know, <laughs> some people. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, and like, isn't it funny that so many of us... I want to say struggle, maybe that's not the right word, but we take time to find our voice in fiction as well as nonfiction and how funny that that, is, that crosses over and that's the thing that we, because I think it's true, I definitely, like I look back at my first nonfiction book and fucking cringe on the inside, but you can still hear the essence of me in there, right? Like we all do right. over time. Exactly. And I feel like your fiction voice is usually going to be different than your nonfiction voice because it's a completely different type of, you know, book. Um, But but yeah, for for me, I I really wanted for for the nonfiction just to be straightforward to the point and actually providing education because I found a lot of nonfiction books where it's like, I'm going to teach you the craft of writing. I felt like it was more like a pep talk, like you can do it, rah, rah, rah. And it's like, I already know I can do it. I need help doing it. Give me some actual advice. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give actual education and, you know, teach people the mistakes to avoid and little pro tips for getting through the process without being stuffy. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that is why like we need genre because we need multiple books because some people want the pep talk and that's completely mm-hmm. fine. And like some of us will like some people's pep talks and hate other people's pep talks. And that's why we need all of these voices and all of these different types of uh, books like in the nonfiction sphere, because like it's like comedians, right? I I don't know if you have you ever heard of Jimmy Carr? Yes. Oh, he's such a fucking knob. I really dislike him, right? (laughs) I think he's like, honestly, I just think he's cruel and a bit of a twat. But then you look at somebody like, um, okay, old school, like Lee Evans or like a more modern one, Michael McIntyre. I find him like, literally, I will cry laughing because I find him that funny. (laughs) But it's the same same for, for craft books and who we get our advice from. And 
And this is why we need your voice. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes. Okay. So your new book is perfect for like kind of newer writers trying to get to the end of their first book, like the end of that very first draft, which is so fucking hard the first time. Mm-hmm. So let's start with new writers. What do you think are the biggest blocks, barriers or mistakes they make when just trying to write the damn book? Um, I honestly, I think newer writers get in their own way and I'm not saying, I'm not like saying it in a condemning way. I've done it to myself a million times. You know, I've been, you know, wanting to be a writer since I was six and I didn't publish my first book until my late twenties, you know? Um, so, I mean, I'm glad I didn't publish at six, but you know what I mean? (laughs) But yeah, I think a lot of writers, they get in their own way. They just restart the first chapter over and over again. The first chapter isn't any good. So they got to redo it and oh, it's still not good. So I got to redo it. And it's like, one of the things I say in the book is you are not yet capable to write a great first chapter. And again, that's, that's not to be condemning or mean. It's just that we grow as we write, we improve over time. So once you finish that first draft and you, you know, the whole thing, not just the first chapter, but the whole first draft, and then you go back to the first chapter, you are going to be an infinitely better writer than when you first attempted it. So let that writer, let future you redo the first chapter. But for now, just get it on the page. Just get the words on the page, allow it to stink up the manuscript for a while. And, and, and understand that as you write, the more you, the more you grow, you're going to improve, you're going to be better. And, you know, maybe in a few months or depending on how long it takes you a few years, you can go back to that chapter and fix it. And that kind of, you know, ties into one of the underlying things that I mentioned in the book is that you, you need to accept the first, the, accept the fact that the first draft is going to suck. It's going to be shit. And even it, it, it could be varying degrees of shit, but pretty much no one no one should ever publish a first draft. Even if you're Stephen King, his first draft is still probably his version of shit. Okay. That's just the way it is. So when you're writing that first draft, do not strive for perfection. That's impossible. Even this last draft is not going to be perfect, but it should be as close as you can get. Just strive to get it done and understand that future you is going to be a more competent writer. They're going to be more capable. They're going to have a better understanding and they can fix the suckage. They can mold all that shit into art. So just, you know, take heart and understand that you can fix it in the future. It's all, you know, it's all changeable. Two things. I, I just agree with everything you're saying. Obviously, I always agree with you. Um, <laughs> the the thing that resonated so hard with me is that um, that is what happened with my very first book. So um, I got to the end of the first draft, looked back at the first chapter and was like, oh, my God, what is this pile of shit? And I had developed so fast and so much in that first draft of that first book that I was like, I can't even salvage this. So I scrapped it and rewrote the whole thing from scratch. And the same fucking thing happened. And I think so I had I threw two drafts away and just started Mm -hmm. again. And it was that third draft that went to to publication. Uh, Well, not the draft, obviously, I edited it. But um, the point being, I think when we come to writing first and foremost like with a serious mindset as opposed to just you know we all write teen fan fiction and shit and when you're in your teenage years or whatever short stories but when you come with the professional mindset of I want to publish and make a career you naturally are more open to learning and growth and development and so I 
well, for me anyway, I, I, I think most of us grow so fast in that first book that no matter what you do, it's never going to be as good as, you know, the ones that happen later. But actually, then you hit a plateau and the growth is then slightly slower. And so you can sort of keep up with yourself um, in terms of getting the quality of that book. And so that it's to this day, I still now draft my first draft as fast as humanly possible because it prevents me from stopping critiquing editing having to go back and just end up fucking the whole book like exactly like literally exactly. i will fuck the whole book if i <laughs> if i slow down so the only way for me to do it is what you said and just get through it as fast as humanly possible and then let future me deal with it so yeah i completely love that um okay let's talk about something that i am struggling with right fucking now in outlining which is <laughs> The saggy middle. So I'm trying to outline my next book and I've got an amazing ending, an amazing beginning and I can't for the fucking life of me figure out how to join the two. So let's talk about the saggy middle. What advice do you want to give me, Jenna? No, I mean other authors, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) To get through the notoriously tough middle of their book. Um, Okay, so the saggy middle syndrome, uh, one of my first points that I mentioned that a lot of people are going to hate, but I'm sorry, it's very helpful. And you, you even just said it is, it really helps to outline. And the reason it helps to outline, not, it, not, it's not just so that you have a plan while writing. It's just, you'll notice mistakes in the outline and it's a lot easier to fix them in the outline than it is to write a whole draft. And then there's a hundred pages of your book that need to be completely rewritten. It's one thing if you've got a page of the outline that needs to be rewritten, but a hundred pages of the book, that that's going to be a lot harder. So you just mentioned that you're having an issue with your outline. If you had just gone through and written the book, I mean, I, it would be, it would be so much harder to, to fix that saggy middle. So that's my first piece of advice is if, you know, if you're not a pantser or if pantsing isn't working for you, um, outline the story first, because then you can see the saggy middle and think, oh, okay, I, I got to fix this. And it'll, it'll be a much quicker fix. Um, usually the saggy middle syndrome, it revolves around the rising action. So obviously every story has an inciting incident, a rising action, a climax, a falling action, and a resolution. Usually the rising action is where people get uh, messed up. And a lot of the time they forget the word action you know they forget that stuff needs to happen you know the story needs to move forward um so what i would recommend is looking up structural options uh there's different structural templates you can use and seeing what types of plot points usually occur in the rising action some examples are the crisis the breaking point the mini climax Um, the crisis is pretty self-explanatory a crisis happens uh the break point is basically the lowest point for the main character. It usually happens right before the climax. It's often interchangeable with the crisis and the mini climax. Uh, Basically something really horrible happens to them and they break down and lose all hope. Um, And then the mini climax is usually some kind of big, you know, tension filled moment that's, you know, precedes the climax. So think about these structural plot points and see how can I fit these into this story and how can I have them lead toward the climax, which is the next point and probably the most important point is I always make sure every single chapter moves the plot forward in some way. So break your book down to its main plot, the main story, not the subplots, not the character development, none of that, just the just the main story you're trying to tell and take a look at every chapter. If 
you could remove, say you're looking at chapter four and you think you have saggy middle uh, syndrome there. If you are looking at chapter four and you could remove it from the book entirely and the story could still continue with little problem, then it's filler. It's Mm -hmm. a saggy middle. It's not doing anything to benefit the story. Uh, So make sure that every single chapter has some kind of plot point that takes the story a step further. It could be the tiniest step. It could be an inch forward. But it has to do something that if that chapter were removed, it, the story couldn't be told the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And for listeners who can hear a strange vibrating, it's my cat purring. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's nothing untowards, I promise. Um, uh, yeah. Butters was like making little grunt noises and licking my hand. And I was like, I hope people don't hear the licking noise and think something weird is going on. <laughs> Because our mics are so powerful. You never fucking know what they're <laughs> going to pick up anyway. Right. Um, yeah, I, I love this. And like, I think like plot and story structure is one of those strange things that you sort of have to experiment with a bit. There are so many different variations on plot structure. Like Dan Wells has a seven point plot plan, uh, whatever it's called. Uh, K.M. K. Wyland has the three arc one that she breaks down into various different ones. You've got um, the 27 chapter outline, the 24 outline. You've got romancing the beat. You've got... Um, plots for authors who do um uh it's usually 20 chapter structures specific to a a trope which is fantastic so i've used their enemies to lovers one which was absolutely fantastic and that got me uh through because i don't I do um, plot structure intuitively, generally. Uh, and then I'm always really surprised when I'm like, oh, look, that was bang on the correct chapter. And I'm like, how did I do that? But you know, when you've read so much about it, you just internalize it. But the point is, is that there are so many options out there. Find the one that works for you because there is going to be a, a story structure. The W plot, that's another one. Like there will be a story structure that works for you and that like meshes with your brain. So yeah, I absolutely love that. And um, yeah, use it use it to either shape before or after but make sure it has structure Um, yeah I I do plot structure um intuitively as well and so when I was writing this book I gave an example of my general structure and I literally was like okay let me just go through my books and what 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 does the plot look like and I was able to pinpoint everything to like oh yeah so this is kind of the mini climax and this is kind of the the crisis and everything but for me it it, you know it's it's one of those things where after you've done it for so long it becomes intuitive and that's something that I mentioned as well as like it's going to be overwhelming at first but Yes. Once you once you get used to storytelling and you get used to structuring your story, you're not even going to think about it. It's just going to happen. Yeah, that is exactly the same as what happened to me. I was looking for um, a midpoint and I was like, oh, let me just go and check this. And then I was like, oh, fuck, that is like to the sentence, the midpoint in the book. <laughs> like, and I was, I, I, and I... As I typed in the non, because I think this was in the anatomy of a bestseller, I, I I tried to convey the fact that I was genuinely surprised that my own book was exactly like structurally correct. But like I don't think it came across because everyone probably just thought that I was a knob and knew what I was doing. But I mean, I obviously did know what I was doing, but I did it intuitively, not like analytically from the beginning. Right, anyway. exactly. You're not you're not thinking about it. You know, <laughs> I get that. Yeah, thanks. Um. Okay, so in your book, you talk about genre and why it's so important. Um, and obviously, like 
having swapped a genre. I understand this. <laughs> but um, as well as you also talk about some advice to try and understand like or find the right genre for your book. So is that something that listeners should do in advance? Can they do it after they've written the book? Um, can you just talk through like genre and why it's so important? So to, to answer your first question, um, I personally address my genre before I write the first draft. And then again, after I write the first draft, I'll do some kind of touch up for the genre. And the reason I do that is because usually I I, at least from my experience, I found that the genre slightly tweaks while you're writing it. It'll The story will sort of evolve into something that you maybe weren't expecting. So for example, when yep. I started the same, yeah, <laughs> see, you get it. And a lot of writers I know have had the same experience. So when I started The Savior's Champion, I thought I was writing a fantasy romance. And then when I finished the first draft, it was still a fantasy romance for the most part, but it was a dark fantasy romance. It had a lot more death and murder than I had anticipated. And yeah, I didn't, you know, take into consideration how much that would affect the genre. So personally, that's what I would recommend to people do it once at the beginning and then another time after the first or second draft. And in terms of how important genre is, I mean, it's extremely important because it's going to dictate how you market the book and who you market it to. And a lot of people, they don't like to put, it's their art, it's my passion. I don't want to put it in a box. And and I mean, I I totally get it. I'm all for passion and artistry, but you're not putting it in a box to limit yourself. You're putting it in a box to target the right readers who are going to appreciate this content. So if Mm -hmm. you give your books the wrong genre, you're going to attract the wrong readers. You're going to get a ton of negative reviews. And it's not necessarily going to be because the book is bad. The book could be great. But if you are targeting sci-fi readers and you've written something completely different, you've written a historical romance, you're you're going to get terrible reviews because you didn't deliver on the promise that you gave to them. Mm -hmm. So when it it comes to looking into genre, a lot of the important things that I think people need to consider is that, first of all, this is one of the biggest things that people mess up is genre and category are not the same thing. They are linked, but they're not the same. Genre is the content. If you've got unicorns and fairies, you got a fantasy novel. If you've got aliens in outer space, you got a sci-fi novel. Category is the age range of your target audience. You're letting people know what age of readers did I write this book for. So for example, young adult means you wrote this book for teenagers. Middle grade means you wrote this book for middle schoolers. Adult technically means it's just a, the general, you know, general populace can read this, but you wrote it with an adult readership in mind, people ages 20 and over. Now, a lot of people hear this and they're like, but I'm an adult and I like to read YA and that's totally fine. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to read the category just because your age isn't reflected. You can read whatever book you want. I was reading adult books when I was in middle school. You can read whatever you want. It's just the author is letting the audience know, I wrote this book with teenagers in mind, or I wrote this book with middle schoolers in mind, or I wrote this book with adults in mind. That's who it is best targeted to, but you could do whatever you want. There isn't an ID check at the bookstore. So understanding that there's a difference between genre and category is super important. Um, Also, I feel like this should go without saying, but you know, common sense ain't common. Uh, Familiarize yourself with all genres, you know, especially the primary ones, you know, because all of these genres have rules. So at least familiarize yourself the rules of the genres that you're entering into. So for example, a murder mystery needs to have a murder 
that is mysterious and it needs to be solved at the end. That is a no. rule of the genre. I know no. it's shocking, but it's true. <laughs> um, another one, romance. Romance is required to have a happily ever after or a happy for now at the end. And a lot of people will be like, well, what about Romeo and Juliet? Romeo and Juliet was a it's tragedy. A tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing. People think a romance is a book that follows a romantic relationship. Not necessarily. A love a love story is another genre, and that follows a romantic relationship, but it doesn't need to have a happy ending. Tragedies can follow romantic relationships. Dramas can follow romantic relationships. Thrillers, any genre can follow a romantic relationship. But romance, specifically that genre, it's a romantic relationship that ends in a happily ever after or a happy for now. So understand the rules of the genre you're getting yourself into, because if you want to write that romantic relationship that ends in tragedy, then you, that's great. You could totally write it, but you got to label it as a tragedy because romance readers are going to be super mad. Um, the next thing you got to take into consideration is subgenres um, because, you know, like I say in the book, fantasy is a very broad genre that covers everything from A Song of Ice and Fire to My Little Pony. Okay. <laughs> and those are wildly different stories for wildly different audiences. So there are subgenres involved. There's epic fantasy, which is something more like Lord of the Rings, you know, traveling for miles on a quest. And there's lots of different world building and different creatures. And then there's dark fantasy, which is fantasy with a hefty dose of murder and death, uh, you know, and then we look into multi-genre books, um, which is a book that fits into where the main plot specifically fits into more than one genre. So we have books like, for example, The Savior's Champion, which is a dark fantasy and a romance. So it would be called a dark fantasy romance. Um, multi-genre is very popular. There's sci-fi romance. There's you know, historical thrillers, there's erotic thrillers. There are so many different multi-genre books out there. Just keep in mind that you don't want to throw the whole kitchen sink into it. If you've got five genres labeling your book, you're doing it wrong. You're you're taking your subgenre or your subplots into consideration. Um, usually two, maybe three genres at the most should be able to categorize your book. Yeah. And the other part about that is also understanding where you're marketing it to. Right. So like this is the first time I'm saying this on a podcast. However, by the time this airs, the book will be out and it will be public <laughs> knowledge. Like the book will literally have been published as well. But um, <laughs> wait, no. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it will be in the run up to the week. Anyway, <laughs> the point being uh, a game of hearts and heists. If I am marketing it to a lesbian audience, then I focus on the fact that it is a lesbian fantasy romance. Right. But if I am marketing it to the fantasy romance audience, like as a whole, straight, queer, whatever, then I'm probably going to be talking about the fact that it is a darker fantasy romance. And I might not even mention the fact that it's queer, you know, because that is going to be obvious by the blurbs, by the reviews, by the cover, the content, like everything else in the package, right? So you can, if you do hit lots of these niches and these subcategories and genres or whatever, then you can also pick and choose when you talk about those elements and then, you know, focus on the the bigger, the fact that it, you are writing fantasy romance, for example. Um, just going back to what you said yes. at the beginning, I completely agree about the fact that, so I deliberately chose to write this one I call it right to reader because I don't really like the term right to market. Like I am writing for the reader. So I want to deliver what the reader wants. So I um, 
intentionally did a shitload of research before I went down this path. And I knew I was going to write steamy. So that was what I thought I was going to do. And then by the time I got to the end of the book, it was a little bit spicy. (laughs) I'm still trying to work out exactly where that line is, but I've had it on good, uh, whatever that word is, that uh, uh, it is spicy. So... (laughs) Yeah, definitely double check that after you've written it. <laughs> exactly. And that that's another thing. Like if you're going to include some spicy elements, it's even more important to like understand your genre and category, you know, well, because you, what well, were you going to say? Well, the thing is, is that like one, I can't believe we're going to say is one person's spice, another person's vanilla. Yes. That's true. That's I so like, true. I was like, wait, this is spicy? <laughs> well, that's the thing is when but I wrote but I wrote the Savior's Champion, um, you know, I finished it and I, you know, I mentioned how it went from fantasy to dark fantasy. The reason that I learned that it was dark fantasy is because my beta readers were like, oh wow, I love dark fantasy. I'm so glad you're writing dark fantasy. I'm like, this is dark. <laughs> like, I'm, like I'm so used to reading books about like murder and bloodshed that I'm like, this isn't like there were there were scenes in the book that I that my readers were like, oh my gosh, Jenna, you are sick. And meanwhile, I wrote them like, I hope this isn't boring. I hope that there's not, <laughs> I hope there's not too much, like I hope there isn't like they're they're happy with the amount of action. And meanwhile, my readers are like, you are sick, Jenna. That was horrible. That was too much. And, and I was worried it was going to be too little, you know? So, so, you know, sometimes you need other people's perspectives to weigh in. This is exactly it. Like I was ticking, um, I was applying for some, like, I can't remember what it was. I was applying for some promo or other. And it was like ticking like triggers and things and like they provided some and I was like oh shit like tick 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 (laughs) I mean not I think it was just content content advisory rather than triggers I I don't think there are any triggers in it but um yeah it it, like you definitely need some outside input anyway um (laughs) okay so you have got some really good advice in your book about the dreaded self-edit and why mistakes aren't actually a bad thing. So I wondered if you could talk listeners through that and how they can change their mindset on edits and maybe any like tips or tricks for getting through the editing stage. I personally fucking hate editing. So if you can change my mind, that'd be great. <laughs> um, I, I, I always say that I love editing most, but, but I have my moments. It depends <laughs> on the scene. There are some scenes that I really hate editing just because they're like so messy that I'm like, oh, where do I even begin? But overall, the concept of editing, I really, really enjoy. And, and that's in part because it, it took a few books to get there, but it, I kind of changed my mindset about editing and I started to look at the process differently. And so for me now, when I notice a mistake, I feel relief and I feel satisfaction because that means that I'm a better writer than when I first wrote whatever I wrote, you know, even if it was something I wrote yesterday, if I'm noticing it today, that means that I'm a better writer than I was yesterday. So for me, I think it's much more concerning if you write a first draft, you go back and read it and you think it's great. 
I think that's a huge concern, a huge red flag. And I've, I've known writers who have been like, oh yeah, I think my writing's perfect the first time around. And then they publish the book and they're like, why isn't anyone buying it? It's like, because you are totally blind to any improvement, any room for improvement. So for me, I like to remind people, if, if you're noticing mistakes, you know, during the self-editing process, you should feel a relief because that means you've grown and improved as a writer. You are now a more competent, skilled writer than you were before. And you now are able to make this piece of work something, you're able to turn it from mediocre to great. You have the skills to be able to do that. Uh, so for me, it, it's exciting when I notice really easily fixable mistakes in my manuscript because I'm like, oh man, I didn't know that before. I know it now. Like I'm leveling up. This isn't even my fun form you know so for me for me it's kind of a cool process and uh, and I definitely encourage people to think that way um I mean if you notice a mistake after the book is published it's, it's a whole other thing <laughs> you know that that's embarrassing but at least when you're in the self-editing phase you get to see your growth and improvement and you get to fix that story and make it even better which means even more people are going to enjoy it even more people are going to buy it so Try to look at it that way that like, wow, look how far I've come. Look how much I've improved. And with the next book, I'm going to be even better. And the next one, I'm going to be even better than that. Like that, that's a really great thing. You're you're becoming a master of the craft. So I, I think it's a really great thing. And in terms of making the self-edit easier, uh, one quote I like to give all the time is inch by inch, life is a cinch, yard by yard, life is hard. A lot of people go to the self-editing phase and they're like, oh my gosh, I have to edit this entire book. And I don't look at it like that. I look at it like I have to edit this scene or I have to edit this chapter, break it up into smaller pieces. It'll make the process a lot easier. And I personally recommend focusing on larger scale edits first, then the medium scale edits, and then the smaller ones. And by large, medium, and small, I don't mean importance. They're all important. I mean, the level of work that goes into them. So I would start with developmental edits, which basically means anything on the story basis. So like if you've got a character that really sucks, that's a, a developmental edit. If you've got um, filler scenes, that's a developmental edit. If your plot, you know, meanders, that's a developmental edit. Start with those bigger changes that are going to affect the entirety of the book. Then work your way down to paragraph and sentence level edits, you know, flow, um, repetition, sentence structure, things like that. And then once you're done with those things, that's when I like to go on a chapter by chapter basis and focus on grammar, punctuation, syntax, those kind of things. Um, so again, if you just take it one step at a time, don't think about the whole book. Okay, that is just gonna drive you mad. <laughs> don't do it. Just, just break it down into smaller pieces. It'll be a lot more manageable. Yeah, I love this so much. I recently discovered <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> one of the things I struggle with when I'm editing is decision fatigue. So mm -hmm. my strength strengths coach, everybody drink, um, <laughs> told me that I was not allowed to make any decisions whilst I edit. Uh, so I like <clears throat> have to try and get the edits done in quite a short period of well, at least the the substance like the substantive edits. I have to get it done in a short space of time because I'm literally not allowed to make any business decisions. So it's like a three week block of like Sasha goes completely dark because I can't like respond to anything. I can't do anything. I can't order anything. I can't because I suffer like extreme exhaustion during editing in a way that I do not with um, drafting. So like I draft and I'm like fucking batshit high the whole time whilst I'm drafting. And then it's just this catastrophic 
crash for me and I, I I'm still we're still working through like techniques and stuff to make that a smoother process for me um because yeah like it, you I really under like I get to the point where I can't even decide what to wear or I can't mm-hmm. even like choose food to cook for my family who require food that day <laughs> right <laughs> yeah like I and not everybody suffers like this some people um get really energized by the editing um uh, phase and I would like to be those people but um, <laughs> but yeah so like for me just my the one thing that I would say is just be kind to yourself during the edits mm-hmm. because you might be like me and find that you get very very mentally tired in a way that you don't in the other parts of and some people get very mentally tired drafting and like mm-hmm. so it's just about where your skills lie yeah so um yeah basically just be kind to yourself and uh make life easy yeah I have the opposite problem as you not because I think editing is a breeze editing is it is very difficult and that's something I want to emphasize um just because I enjoy the process mostly (laughs) overall doesn't mean that I think it's easy um but when I'm drafting I'm it's like a mix of fun and terror because I'm I'm one of those people who I'm drafting the first draft and I'm just like, this is fun, but it sucks. I know all of this sucks. You know, like I'm writing it like this is garbage. I know I just wrote that sentence I just wrote is six lines long. You know, like I, I, I'm writing it and I'm so aware that it, it's bad. And I, I ha- and that's one of the one of the reasons I mentioned it in the book is just like accept it's gonna suck. And it can be hard to accept it, but it's push through, push through. That's what Mm -hmm. I do. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. I know, okay, that sentence I wrote made no sense. And I use the same word 12 times, just keep going, just keep going, you know, and I'll be like, okay, just whip out as much as possible. Then by the end, I'm like exhausted. Like, oh my gosh, I just did all of that. And I'm scared to read it the next day, but, but it must be done, you know? And usually at least for me, I'll be drafting and feeling like I'm having fun, but I'm also terrified because this is terrible. But when I read it the next day, it's almost, almost never as bad as I thought it was. It's like, yes, there are some sentences and sections that it's like delete, but it's never as terrible as I, well, almost never as terrible as I thought it was when I wrote it. There was one situation where it was so much worse than I thought it was, Um, but that's because I wrote it while inebriated. And then I read it the next day and was like, oh my gosh, like how much did you drink? (laughs) Add a little more spice, add a little more spice. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, oh, Oh, so bad. Um, Okay, so one of my favorite parts in every novel is the breaking point of The Dark Knight of the Soul. We talked a little bit about that earlier. But for some reason, loads of writers really struggle with doing The Dark Knight of the Soul. And like, I think it's because they come to love their hero and they don't want to put them through that horrific moment. Um, So do you have any advice for making the dark moment truly dark um, and or like really impactful and effective? Well, I have a ton of advice for this because it's one of, it's, it's, let let me put it this way. It's not one of my favorite moments in the books, but it's, it's one of my favorite in theory Mm. because it's so impactful and powerful for the story. It's one of those, it's one of those moments that when you're writing it, you feel like a total douchebag. You're like, oh, I am an awful human being, but it does so much for the story. So if if you're not familiar, the dark night of the soul or the breaking point is basically a moment that occurs 
either right before the climax or a, a couple of chapters before the climax where something really terrible happens to the main character and they break down. They, it's their lowest moment in the book. So they're usually self-pitying or they're sad or they're grieving or they regress to old habits. Um, but basically they just react the way normal human beings do to really horrible things that happen in their life. So the first piece of advice I have is that this is this can and should be done in any genre. A lot of people think it's only for um, superhero stories or action adventure. It can be done in any genre. Um, it's just going to happen at varying degrees. So for example, in a contemporary romance, you don't have life and death stakes in those kind of books usually. So the breaking point is usually a breakup. It's whatever would be the most catastrophic thing for that story. So the breaking point is usually um, in a romance, it's usually when the characters become estranged. Um, one is taken away to a far off place and they think they're never going to see each other again or they break up or they get in a huge fight and they're not talking to each other it's, it's something like that but in a book with life and death stakes the breaking point usually involves a life and death situation it's usually um someone the main character cares about and they feel responsible for that person either dying or almost dying or getting injured or something like that um so there are varying degrees of it but it can happen in any genre and if you like read any book or watch any movie in a multiple form of fictional genres, you're going to see a breaking point across pretty much everything. Um, another thing I like to remind people is that it's the worst moment in the book. A lot of people think, well, my character has a really bad childhood. And so isn't that their breaking point? And I'm like, well, is there childhood in your book? No, it takes place before the book started. It's like, no, then that's not the breaking point. It's irrelevant. It's the worst moment in the book. So you know, my main character, Tobias, his dad died and his sister was um, left disabled from an accident. That's clearly one of the worst moments of his life, you know, the death of a parent. But that didn't happen in the book. That's his backstory. So it's not his breaking point. The breaking point is a different moment. And it's a moment that actually occurs in The Savior's Champion. So that's something to keep in mind. It's it's the worst moment in the book, not in the character's life. Um probably the most important thing is that it must relate to the plot. It has to be tied into the plot somehow, either if, if, it, if it, excuse me, if it isn't, it's just going to come across as filler. You know, it's going to be like, what does this have to do with anything? Um, an example that I give in Shut Up and Write the Book is if you're writing a murder mystery and your detective's brother dies of cancer, that's super sad, but that has nothing to do with a murder mystery. But if her brother instead dies at the hand of the murderer that she is, you know, being a detective for, that ties directly into the plot and it's going to affect the main character in a different way because she's going to feel responsible for that death. She was the one investigating this murderer. And so her brother was put at risk in part because of her. So you see how it ties directly into the plot and it can cause a lot of grief and turmoil, which leads to the the final point, which is uh, breaking points usually expose the main character's shame or fear. Um, and sometimes they kind of uh, force it to happen. So for example, if you're, if you're writing a romance and your character is afraid of being alone, sometimes in the breaking point, they will cause a breakup because they're afraid of being alone. They think I will reject them first before they reject me. It'll make it easier to deal with. So think about your main characters, you, what they're afraid of, what they're embarrassed of, of and kind of expose those scars and it'll make a really really punchy breaking point yeah I think I agree with you in that it's my favorite theoretical 
moment in the in the book because like my two favorite moments in a romance one are the bang scenes and of two obviously and two are the scenes where like the characters really want to bang but like they can't bring themselves to bang because they're not there yet right. like that tease is excruciating okay last question Having written the book, if you could only tell your younger self one piece of knowledge before you started writing your first book, what would it be? Or what do you know now that you'd go back and say to Ickle Jenna? Um, <laughs> this one's, uh, well, I was about to say this is kind of sweary, but we're on the Rebel Author Podcast, so no one cares. To hell with everyone else. Like, fuck them. That's what I would say. Fuck them. Write what you want to write. Um I felt so crippled by other people's opinions for the longest time. And it was such a waste of my time because now I'm writing exactly what I want to write and people love it. Like my book became an award winner and they're bestsellers. It's like people, people are enjoying it. And I wasted so much time worried like, oh, will people judge me? Who fucking cares? Let them judge you. It's their own problem. It's their opinions are not you know, your, your problem, let them deal with it. So that's the piece of advice I would give is fuck them, you know, just write what you want to write. It'll work out. People will enjoy it. The right people will for sure enjoy it. And if people judge you because you, you know, because of the fact that you want to be a writer or what you want to write, that's their problem. They can go back to their miserable corporate lives. Let them be sad. I love that so much. I'm reading, um, I I love that so much because I feel like it's a lesson I've had to learn again recently. And um, I'm reading this book called Happy Money by Ken Honda. And in it, he says something along the lines of, and I literally put it in my Patreon post today. um, It's something like uh, the bullies are always in their heads. The only person that's actually judging them is themselves. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fuck me. Like, this whole thing starts with self-love. And if you just write for yourself, if you write the book that you want to read, like mm-hmm. it doesn't fucking matter what anybody else thinks anyway, because you've written right. the book that you want to write. And like, that is the experience that I had with A Game of Hearts and Hearts because mm-hmm. I just, I did it in secret. And so I had nobody to judge me. The only person I had to judge was me. And I was like, I'm all right, the shit I want to write. And like, oh, I just love that. I think that is a lesson that, I think it's a lesson that we all hear, but we don't really know it and understand it until we have that moment of epiphany and like acceptance right. of ourselves. And it's such an important moment. And I really hope that somebody listens and goes away having had the epiphany that we've both had. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, okay, okay, well... This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I consider myself very rebellious, but I'm not rebellious in the most, uh, I guess, literal sense. Like I'm not a thrill seeker. I've never been skydiving or anything like that. But I feel like I've always been a rebel just in the sense of, you know, learning to be my authentic self. Um, I'm neurodivergent. Um, I'm not, tra- I mean, like I consider myself feminine, but I don't ascribe to traditional, fe- you know, feminine roles, you know, uh, I'm not people pleasing. And there was a long time in my life where I'd have, you know, guys telling me things like you need to tone yourself down because no man will want you because you're too, 
you know, alpha, you're too powerful and things like that. And it's like the, the way I look, I would look at that is, well, if they don't like me for being myself, then that just, okay, good. One guy out of the way that I don't have to date. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, he can move along, you know, I would rather be alone than be with someone who, that I'd have to change myself for. And I'm not alone. I do have a wonderful partner and he loves me exactly the way that I am. And, um, I guess just, you know, learning to not, you know, fold under societal expectations, you know, learning to, you know, not force myself to mask, um, which is, you know, a neurodivergent term um, and just being my authentic self and realizing that I can be me and people still like me. And if they don't, fuck them. We always go back to fuck them, you know? So I, I guess for me, I being like my whole existence is kind of rebellious because a, a lot of the things that I was expected to do and I was supposed to do, I decided I'm not going to do, you know, I was supposed to get a boring corporate job and, you know, get married and have children. And I said, I'm going to be a writer instead. And I'm going to get puppies instead of kids. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to write about murder and sex. And that's what I want to do, you know? Um, so I guess just, yeah, like being myself feels like my biggest act of rebellion because pretty much for a big chunk of my life, everyone told me that I had to change who I was. And I said, no, thanks. <laughs> and like, I love that so much because I think it is the truest rebellion that we can, that any person can do because we, we as a collective species, I think suffer under the weight of um, supposed expectations or judgments mm -hmm. from society. And so we try and craft and shape ourselves into what is expected of us or what we think is expected of us. And actually the, like going back to what Ken Honda said, the only person who's placing expectations is yourself so like right. just just release yourself of that burden and be mm -hmm. you and like stop and breathe and take a minute to fucking figure out who that person is because they are beautiful and they need to be in the world so I absolutely love that okay tell everyone where they can find out more about you your books and anything else that you would like to add so the most obvious place that you can find me is on my YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Jenna Moresi, M-O-R-E-C-I. Uh, or you can look up Writing with Jenna Moresi, which is what my YouTube channel is called. You can also find me at my website, jennamoresi.com. I am all over social media. I am most active probably on Instagram at Jenna Moresi and TikTok at Jenna Moresi, but I'm also on Facebook. Um, and you can also subscribe to my newsletter. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, you can get a free free short story. And uh, aside from all that, you can find all of my books all over the place. They are available wide, which means they are available at all major retailers. So if you want to learn a step-by-step -step guide to writing your novel from plan to print, check out Shut Up and Write the Book. It's available at all major retailers. And it is literally available right now. So go yes. and fucking buy it. <laughs> yes. Please do. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Jenna Moresi and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm joined by not one, but two guests, Christina Stanley and Lucy Cook. And we're going to be talking all about the secrets to editing success. So join me next week for that. 
Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.